0: This message was presented at the GYC 2014 conference at the Cross in Phoenix, Arizona. For other resources like this, visit us online at www.gycweb.org. Well, friends, uh, we can we will start. It's 2:01, so we're one minute past time, but I do want to start uh, now and get get things rolling. I'm sure we'll have a few more. Uh, coming in as, uh, as the thing progresses. Uh, how has your GYC time been? Have you been blessed? Good, that's encouraging. As I was uh, standing up there with all the rest of the seminar uh, presenters and so on, I picked out about five probably that I really wanted to go to, so... Uh, the great thing is, we can listen to them on audio verse, and I hope that all of you will avail yourselves of, of that resource. Um, what a blessing that ministry is uh, to to many people. So uh, let's just take a moment to pray, and um, I invite you to kneel if you're able. Um, I'm going to just stand so that I can have amplification, not so much for your sake, but for the sake of the people on... Uh, That are listening in later. Dear Father, we are so grateful for the privilege that we have of studying your word together during this convocation. I pray that your spirit would guide and direct us. Lord, you know I have no wisdom to impart of myself. Lord, the people who are listening to this, whether they're here in the hall or somewhere else uh, listening to the recording, Father, they have no wisdom either. None of us has anything except what we gain from you. And so I ask you to send your Holy Spirit here in a powerful way. Father, I invite you to dwell in me. Lord, I humble my heart before you. Lord, take this time and use it to the benefit and edification of your people. We ask this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. All right. So um, I have my Bible program uh, right up here on the screen. This is not the uh, keynote presentation, but in order to have continuity from this morning, we need to understand where we are on the roadmap of Colossians. We're still in the first chapter, um, and uh, we'll be expanding the content as we get into the last three sessions, we'll do chapter two by itself, and then most of chap, all of chapter three, and a little bit of chapter four, and then a final session in chapter four, uh, and that'll be Sabbath afternoon. But to begin, let's pick up the thread where we left it last time um, in Colossians chapter one. Uh, we talked about Paul revealing the uh, purpose of why Jesus came to this world. And he does so very clearly in the book of Colossians, by the way. Uh, We'll pick it up in verse 20. He says, And having made peace through the blood of his cross, by him to reconcile all things unto himself, by him I say, whether they be things in earth or things in heaven. So we talked about that a a little bit, how they're, 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 The great controversy demonstrates uh, for us that the plan of redemption was not solely for the sake and benefit of humanity, but for unfallen worlds uh, all over this universe and angels who still had questions and doubts in their minds uh, after Lucifer's rebellion had come to fruition in heaven. There is this element of reconciling things not only on earth, but also in heaven. I think it's a very important point and uh, so it bears repeating. But then also, uh, Paul continues, he says, And you, that were sometime alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, he ha- yet, ha- yet now hath he in the body of his flesh reconciled you through death to present you holy and unblameable and unreprovable in his sight. So the purpose of the plan of redemption was to reconcile things on earth, reconcile things in heaven, but there's a personal application and that's what we finished off with uh, this past hour, was the fact that um, us personally, we personally need to make a response to what Jesus did. And um, of course, the basis of that response is accepting what he did by faith. And verse 23, he says, If ye continue in the faith, grounded and settled, and be not moved away from the hope of the gospel which ye have heard, and which was preached to every creature which is under heaven, whereof I, Paul, am made a minister. So we finished right there uh, this morning. So... Paul's speaking there now of his own ministry, and so we'll go from there, from verse 23, into our presentation, which begins with verse 24. Uh, let me do just one thing before we do that. Are these PowerPoints going to be online? Yes, they will. Yes. <laughs> yeah, everything will be online. All right. So verse 24, starting out. Again, Paul here is speaking of himself, speaking of his own ministry now. Because he, he's spoken about the earth and he's spoken about heaven and the effect that the cross of Christ has had on earth and in heaven. And now he speaks, uh, he, after he addresses us personally by saying, and you, Now he is going to speak about his own ministry and the effect that the cross of Christ has had on him. So verse 24, he says, who now rejoice in my sufferings for you? Who's Paul talking about? Who is he talking about? When I ask questions, I expect you to answer. (laughs) Yeah, himself, right? He's talking about his own uh, experience. He says, Who now rejoice in my sufferings for you and fill up that which is behind of the afflictions of Christ in my flesh for his body's sake, which is the church. Okay, so notice that ministry uh, is rooted in sacrifice. And it's not a sacrifice of compulsion. Nobody was forcing Paul to do anything. But in fact, he says, I rejoice in my sufferings for you. What is it that can make someone rejoice in sufferings? Now, let me ask you this. How many of you have suffered anything recently? Has has anyone been sick recently? Yes, you have, brother. Did you rejoice in that? No, No, I, I can't imagine that you did. If you've been sick recently you probably weren't rejoicing in being infirmed. Some of us have aches and pains or uh, injuries that bother us or other things. Typically, those are not occasions of rejoicing. However, Paul speaks here of his sufferings for the sake of Christ's ministry as being something that he could rejoice in. What makes the difference here? You know, if you search the New Testament, there is one thing that you will not find very much of. In fact, I would be challenged to come up with a single example of it uh, if you were to ask me. And it's something that you see all over the Old Testament in the books of Exodus and Numbers and so on. Something God's people did in the Old Testament that they don't do in the New Testament. Yeah, that too. My brother said kill lambs. But there's there's a response that they had in the Old Testament when they were brought out of Egypt. They had all these blessings. They had the sanctuary tabernacle going around with them. God was in their midst. God was doing great things for those people. He had done great things for them already by delivering them. And so often, every time you turn around in the book of Exodus and Numbers and so on, what do you find the people doing? Say it again, brother. Yeah, they, they, they eat and drink and rose up to play. Yes, that's true. They did that. What else did they do, though, a lot of times? It often happened in the tents. Yes, they were often found murmuring. I would invite you to consider something. Look at the New Testament and show me where God's people in the New Testament murmured. I challenge you to find that. Where did they murmur? Where did they complain? Where did they fuss? Where did they say, oh, if we could only go back to Egypt and have the leeks and the onions and the the flesh pots. That was the big thing back then in the Exodus, right? But in the in the New Testament, you don't find that kind of murmuring and complaining. Whining. You know, there's no whining. There's, I can't think of anybody in the New Testament who whines. Why? Because they had understood the, how it is possible to rejoice in sacrifice and suffering. notice that this sacrifice or these sufferings are sufferings in the flesh. Do you see that in the in the latter part of the verse? He says, "I rejoice in my sufferings for you and fill up that which is behind of the afflictions of Christ where in my flesh." Well, what did Paul mean by that? Does he simply mean that he had um, you know, infirmities that he was complaining about or that he was not complaining about but enumerating here? Did Paul have a physical infirmity? Yes, he did. Is that what he means here? No, I don't think so. What did Paul mean by this idea of filling up what is lacking in the sufferings of Christ in his flesh? Is suffering in the flesh the same thing as catching a cold or a flu? Or does Paul mean something different here? You guys didn't eat too much for lunch, did you? <laughs> yeah, it's a great thing about the food. You know, you would never gain weight on, this, uh, on, on the, the food here. It's great. I mean, I love it. You know, I think they purposely must have structured the menu so that we would have clearer minds after meals, right? That's good. Amen. Uh, that's something to rejoice in. Believe me, I, this is not any, uh, any craving for the flesh pots of Egypt. Uh, <laughs> amen. Right. Thank you, James. All right. So what does Paul mean by suffering in the flesh? Let me suggest to you that he is referring to resisting uh, temptation, and that involves suffering denying self, okay? For instance, let me uh, address the ladies in the group. Okay, ladies, we have a few. Uh, If you are tempted when you go to the grocery store, I know this probably doesn't happen to very many of you, (laughs) but if you're tempted to uh, buy one of those chocolate bars in the checkout line, I'm sure that never happens to any of you ladies. It's purely hypothetical, right? But if you're tempted to buy one of those chocolate bars and you, by the grace of God, say, you know, number one, it's between meals. Number two, it's really not the healthiest thing I could choose. Uh, number three, that sugar is going to spike my insulin out of, out of this world. And I really don't want to do that to myself. And so, therefore, by the grace of God, you say, no. I'm not going to do that. Not going to buy that chocolate bar. Let me ask you one question Is your flesh happy about that decision? Does your flesh suffer when you say no to it? You guys must have different flesh than I have. I don't know. Nobody's responding there. You know, <laughs> When you, when you say no to the flesh, when you deny self of something you really would, by nature, like to have, the flesh suffers. Did Jesus suffer in the flesh? Yeah, he did. Every day. He denied himself. He said no to what his nature would naturally want. All the time, every time, he said no. And Paul also had this same experience where he was willing to deny himself for the sake of Jesus and his message. So Paul, um, Paul's ministry was a ministry that was rooted in sacrifice. You know, this actually is the currency of the gospel. If you want to know how to impact people, How to influence people for good. Show them sacrifice. Show them self denial. Show them that you're willing to put yourself on the line for their sakes, and you will get their attention. How many of you believe that? This is why medical missionary work, which uh, my dear brother Don McIntosh and Dr. Leela Lewis are talking about even now as we speak, I would encourage you all to listen to those uh, presentations. But uh, the medical evangelism is the way to open doors of the hearts of people for the gospel. Why is that? Because it's us putting ourselves on the line to minister to their needs, wanting nothing in return. Giving because there's a need, not because we want them to do something for us. So Paul's ministry was rooted in that kind of thing. When, when people see people who are willing to sacrifice and willing to uh, deny self, it will influence them to turn to the gospel. That's what this entire church must become and will become, a church of people who are willing to suffer whatever is lacking in the sufferings of Christ in the flesh. <sighs> I have a couple of, uh, actually, quotations on this. Ellen White had many difficult experiences in her life. There were challenges that she faced. You know, I don't know if we realize all the time, I think some of us think that it must have been really glamorous to be the messenger of the Lord. How many of you have that understanding, that it must have been really glamorous to be Ellen White? Anyone? You know, she had a difficult time. They talked about her. They talked about her husband, James. It hurt them. I mean, it was, it was challenging at times. So she, of all people, understood what Paul meant here. And I think her husband, James, understood it too. But she says here in this quotation from the Review and Herald, March 16, 1886, she says, I then understood why our Heavenly Father permits temptations trials and afflictions to come to his loved ones. We might ask that question. I mean, why on earth you got a guy like Paul who's putting everything out there, why is he allowed to have sufferings and and afflictions? You know, I've asked that question myself too. In, you know, doing what I'm doing, you know, some people think it must must be just absolutely glamorous to work at an institution like Weimar Institute, and it is. It's a great place to work. I work with all kinds of great people. We have great students. There are challenges there, though. Just like there are in every single ministry, every single institution. There are challenges. You know, it's hard to know what to do sometimes. And we say, why does God allow those kind of things? She says, these are designed to give his children a deeper sense of his presence and providential care. And if there's anyone who needs to understand what it means to have a deep sense of God's presence and providential care, it's those that are on the front lines. And so we shouldn't be surprised that people on the front lines of ministry experience sufferings and afflictions and need to make sacrifices. James, you of all people ought to know this too, being on the front lines of, in other ways. Mm. Right. Suffering is a part of knowing Christ. Absolutely. Totally agree. So they are his providences. They are also and here's the second reason why God allows sufferings. They are also his providences. Visitations of mercy. Did you catch that? Suffering and affliction can be a visitation of God's mercy to bring back those who stray from his side. The peace that passeth understanding is not for those who try to shirk trials and self-denial. We cannot fully appreciate peace and joy in Christ and the gift of eternal life unless we are called to make some sacrifice to obtain these great blessings. Friends, If you are thinking that the ideal Christian life is just to go out in the wilderness somewhere and have your nice little cabin and maybe give a Bible study here and there, but you never experience any perplexity, never experience any trial, never experience any hard times, I think you've got the wrong idea. Because God allows suffering and affliction in order to help us in our fallen nature to appreciate the blessings that he's prepared for us and give us a deeper sense of his providential care and, if necessary, to bring us back if we stray away from his side too far. How many of you would like to say thank you, Jesus, by faith, for trials and afflictions? You know, I, I want to say that. Even though during the time, hey, I'm as big a wimp as anybody. I don't care to have trials and afflictions in my life. I would love to just cruise right on through. Somehow I just don't think that's going to happen. It hasn't proven true yet anyway. Here's one more. Yes, James. Okay. The question is uh, from my dear friend, uh, (laughs) my dear brother, and who we. It was. Yeah, it's great to see you. By the way, and your family. Um, Should we should we pursue suffering and sacrifice? Then should we go directly toward it? Jesus actually said something about this. He says, "When they persecute you in one city, flee to another." You know, it's one thing to. Jesus went into the wilderness of temptation. How, was he, how did he decide to go there? What was the process? What's that? He was led there by the Holy Spirit. Uh, when Jesus was ready to go to the cross, what did he ask the Father? Three times in the Garden of Gethsemane. If, this, if it's possible, could we dispense with this cup, please? And the Father, of course, said what? No, that's not going to work. Son, we can't. So should we go uh, headlong into sacrifice and suffering? I I would say this. Every path in the Christian life will ultimately lead to some manner of sacrifice, and it will involve suffering in the flesh. We don't need to go out of our way to find it, right? So God will lead us uh, in the way that will be best for us, And if we start to try to make the decisions about plowing headlong into it, we may find ourselves in a situation God hasn't called us to be in, which would be unfortunate. So I hope that answers your question, at least in part. Continuing, uh, in ninth volume of the Testimonies, page 59, she writes, Love for lost souls brought Christ to Calvary's cross. How did Jesus come to be at the cross? Very simple. He thought it worthwhile to save you and me. That's what took him to the cross. But there's a reciprocal aspect to that, and here it is. She says, Love for souls will lead us to self-denial and sacrifice, what is that but a repetition of the principle of the cross? The cross was the ultimate self-denial and sacrifice for Jesus. If we love souls like he loved souls, then we will be willing to also, uh, for the same reasons, experience self-denial and sacrifice for the saving of that which is lost. And as Christ followers give back to the Lord his own, they are accumulating treasure which will be theirs when they hear the words, Well done, thou good and faithful servant, enter thou into the joy of thy Lord. Who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. Matthew 25, verse 21, Hebrews twelve, two. The joy of seeing souls eternally saved will be the reward of all who follow in the steps of the Redeemer. So what propelled Jesus to the cross is the very same principle that propelled Paul to sacrifice and uh, endure affliction for the cause of God. It was to save lost people. Is that what drives you? That's the question. Now, notice that Paul's ministry was a ministry that was managed by God. The purpose of the church involves sacrifice and suffering to move it forward, and it's a purpose that is managed by divine agencies. Paul says in verse 25, Whereof I am made a minister according to the dispensation of God, which is given to me for you, To fulfill the word of God. So he's hinted at that already in the beginning of the letter. How many of you were here this morning for the very first session? You remember? Karen, you were here. Yes, brother, you were here. So remember, Paul talked about his apostleship. He said in the very greeting, he said, Paul, an apostle, according to the will of God, right? By the will of God. So here again, he mentions uh, that he is a minister according to the dispensation of God. Now, I want you to notice something here. In the first part of this verse, is this in the, these are, for, these are how many of you are students of English grammar? Everybody take English? Yeah? Okay, yes, of course you would have had to, my brother. So, uh, is this in the active voice or the passive voice? Whereof I am made a minister. Is that active voice or passive voice? Wherefore I am made a minister. Who is receiving the action there? Who is performing the action? Hmm? God's performing the action. Paul is receiving the action. So therefore this is in the passive voice, isn't it? I think that's important to understand. There are some implications here. Ministers had better be called by God, not by church policy. Ministers, uh, ministry is not a calling that you choose because you think, well, let's see. I can make a reasonable living at that. Actually, it's, you know, it's a sacrificial living. But, you know, some people think, yeah, I mean, I can have a living wage and uh, I won't have to do anything too hard with my hands. Uh, And, you know, it's a way to sort of gain influence with people. So I think I'll choose the ministry as a career. Let me ask you something. Can you think of anything more unbiblical than that view of ministry? What was it for Paul? Was ministry something Paul chose? Did he decide one day that he was going to set out to be a Christian apostle? How did it happen? Let me tell you how it happened. He was on the Damascus Road headed the opposite direction of where God wanted him to go, right? (laughs) He was not anywhere close to this. This was not something he chose. And God knocked him down off his horse. And God... In His mercy, revealed Himself to the apostle, and He said, "I'm calling you to be My chosen servant to take the gospel to the Gentiles." Friends, I want to—if you don't remember anything—I don't know if there are any—if uh, there's anyone here upon whom the Lord is laying this burden uh, of ministry. But one thing you must understand. Ministry is not a decision you make. I mean, yes, you you can say yes or no to the call, but ministry is something to which you must be called. Paul was made a minister. He did not decide one day, based on some career uh, profile that he did online, that he was going to be a minister. Uh Uh-uh. It doesn't work like that. Paul was made a minister in accordance with the dispensation of God. This word refers to this word dispensation refers to the management of a household. In this context, it refers to a ministerial commission. This uh, the use of this term fits well actually with Paul's discussion of the office of an elder in First Timothy three, since one of the major prerequisites to holding that office is to manage one's household, which is uh, related to this word well. Ministers, then, if they are made ministers by God, and this uh, making of the minister is in accordance with the management or dispensation or, uh, uh, of God, then they are called by God to serve his people in accordance with his purpose, not any purpose that the minister himself would have. Uh, Paul says, which is given to me for who? Everyone? No, I... Again, I, I, you don't want me to start walking up and down these aisles, do you? I mean, the Audioverse people would be very disappointed if I did that. But for the sake of those of you who are here, I'm willing to risk their displeasure. <laughs> but that's what I do in my classes. You know, I'll walk up and down the aisle, and I'll, I'll talk to people. I'll sit down next to somebody, and I'll ask them a question this far away, right? <laughs> so uh, when I ask the question, please do respond, Okay. No one will hear you up here. These mics aren't going to pick you up, so you don't have to worry about being embarrassed if you say something. But um, according to this, ministry is for the people, not for the minister himself. And the purpose of that is to fulfill the word of God, to act and exhort others to act in accordance with God's great purpose, which is the restoration of his own image in a lost race. Ministry then is not, as we mentioned, an occupation that you decide you want to pursue. Ministry is not a climb up the corporate ladder. Paul had no uh, inclination to rise to some superstar level. In fact, why was Paul an apostle? Why was he a leader in the early church? Think about the people that were made leaders in the early church. Why were they made leaders? Okay, Paul was a leader because he already had influence. Plus, uh, that, that is a good answer. That's not exactly the answer I was looking for, but it is, that is relevant. Yes. Why else? Why are some of the other people in the New Testament in leadership? They were chosen by the Holy Spirit for that. How did they give evidence that they were called? Remember Barnabas? Barnabas is a fascinating story. And there were people that tried to imitate what Barnabas did with the wrong motives, and they died. You remember that? Barnabas sacrificed financially. He put resources out there so that the gospel could go forward. People recognized that that the Holy Spirit was working in his life, and he became a leader in the early church. People who are willing to sacrifice, who are willing to do stuff, are put in leadership. That's how it's supposed to work. It's not well. What do I need to do to become a conference president? Well, let's see. Uh, I need to just be political, not upset anybody. You know, that's not the path, friends. It's a path that some try to take, but that's not the path that God has ordained. So ministry, according to Paul, it's not a climb up the corporate ladder. It's not something you do to build your self-esteem. You know, some people might think that this is really glamorous, what I'm doing up here. You know, you get to stand up in front of everybody and everybody listens to you. You know, this is a lot of, Humiliation and heart work because everything you say speaks to your own heart as you say it and before you say it. You have to wrestle with it all. And the burden of souls is not a light burden to carry on your heart. It's not a role in which you are your own boss. Some people like that about ministry, uh, unfortunately. They say, well, you know, I don't like too much accountability, and it seems like ministers don't have a lot of accountability. You know, the conference president isn't there watching you every day. You know, you, you don't punch in and punch out. Some people think, oh, that's pretty attractive. I like that. Not a reason to be involved in ministry. In fact, you know, clearly here, Who is Paul accountable to? Not the conference president, but God. (laughs) Ministers are accountable to God for the way they use their time. They're accountable to God by the way they use their their influence. They're accountable to God by what they say, by how they act, everything. So if you want a role with no accountability or limited accountability, the ministry is not that role. But Paul was willing to take on all those things. Why? Because he had a love for souls. It burdened him that there were people out there that did not know his Jesus. Does it burden you? If God is laying that burden on your heart as a young man, he may be calling you to ministry. Be open to that call. But understand the nature of that call. I want to move on as uh, time is getting away. Verse 26, 27, and 28. Here's what Paul's ministry was all about. He says, we'll go back and just catch the uh, end of verse 25. He says, whereof... I am made a minister according to the dispensation of God, which is given to me for you to fulfill the word of God. What is that? What does he mean? To fulfill the word of God. Here's what he means. Even the mystery which hath been hid from ages and from generations, but is now made manifest to the saints. So what is this mystery that Paul says is equivalent to the word of God? Well, whatever it is, it must mean that this mystery is the essence of the message of God's Word. So let me ask you this. What is the essence of the Word of God? What is the message that you get when you pick up the Bible? When you read the Old Testament, what do you see? Of course, that's the book that Paul was referring to, isn't it? That's the Bible he had. When you read Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus... Numbers, Deuteronomy, the Psalms, the prophets, all of these things, what is the message that you come away with? You guys have read this, uh, this book, right? Okay. What's the message? God's love for a fallen world expressed through his giving of his only begotten son. That's the message. God manifest in the flesh. That's what, you know, when, when, the, when God said, let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell among them. That was God manifest in the flesh. So this mystery, Paul says, which hath been hid from ages and from generation is now made manifest to his saints. What does he mean by that? You have the Old Testament that speaks of Christ. How? By what means? How does the Old Testament speak of Christ? Openly? Mysteriously. Through types and shadows, right? You have all of these uh, veiled references to the Messiah and what he was going to do. You have all those servant songs in the book of Isaiah, you know, chapter 40, through, uh, uh, you know, 50, in the 50s somewhere, 53. Isaiah 53, for instance, is one of those. God speaks in a veiled way in the Old Testament, but when you come to the New Testament, he speaks openly now of his son. Everything is explicit. Why? Because everything is now accomplished. Jesus came, sacrificed his life, and now has gone to heaven to be involved in the heavenly ministry, the heavenly phase of the atonement. So these things have now been made manifest to the saints, Paul says, to whom God would make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery, among whom? The Gentiles. Now, how do the Gentiles come to this? What's the purpose of saying that this mystery is made known to the Gentiles? Have you thought about that? So you have God's people in the Old Testament. We call them what? Hebrews, right? The Hebrew people, what was God's intention for them? What was his plan? What was the mission? They were supposed to be a light to, the, to who? Each other? No, to the world. They were supposed to take the gospel to the Gentiles. They were supposed to bring the Gentiles in and expose them to sacrifice and the meaning of the rituals of the temple and all of that. That's what their, that's what their mission was. Did they fulfill the mission? No. In fact, interestingly, if you look at the Old Testament, as compared to the New Testament, there's an interesting uh, reciprocal there. In the Old Testament, you have a book of failure, where the majority of the people were not on the same page with God. There were a few that were righteous, and he honored those people. But the majority of them were on a different page, headed a different direction. And the mission was not successful. However, in the New Testament, you find the opposite is the case. In the New Testament, you have the majority of the church on the same page with God. They fulfilled the mission. There were a few that weren't on the right page, and God dealt with them. Right? So the Old Testament, in a very real sense, is a book of failure, not on the part of God, but on the part of the people. The New Testament is a book of success, not on the part of the people, but on the part of God, and uh, the outcome is completely different. The New Testament church actually fulfills the mission, takes the gospel to the Gentiles. The Old Testament church failed to do that. So Paul says uh, that God is making known what are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which, what is this mystery? Well, it's something that needs to be manifest among the Gentiles. And But what is the mystery, according to verse 27 here at the end? You see it? Christ in you, the hope of glory. What is Christ in you? It's God manifest in the flesh. God Manifest in your flesh through the indwelling of Christ, through the Holy Spirit. That's the mystery which was being demonstrated in the New Testament era, first through Christ himself and then through his church. And in the last days, it will be demonstrated again in an even more complete sense through his church. How do I know that? Well, I'll come back to this the end of uh, verse twenty-eight, but I want to take you ahead a moment to uh, Revelation chapter ten. Revelation chapter ten, where you see that mighty angel standing before John with his one hand on the uh, sea and one one sorry one foot on the sea and one foot on the land, and he raises his hand to heaven and swears that there should be time no longer. Picking it up there in verse seven now. But in the days of the voice of the seventh angel, when he shall begin to sound, this is in the context of the seven trumpets, the very last thing on the agenda in the seven trumpets, before the seventh angel sounds his trumpet, is this, that the mystery of God should be finished as he hath declared to his servants the prophets. So what is this mystery of God that is going to be finished by God's grace in our generation? It is Christ in you, the hope of glory, a revelation of God in the flesh. Why is this important? Is God just showing off? Why is it important for people to see a manifestation of God in the flesh? Why was it important for them to see Jesus? Why, why did Jesus need to come? Okay? The hope of glory. Yes? But what, what was the world struggling with when Jesus came the first time? Darkness and misapprehension of God. We talked about that earlier this morning. The power of darkness. God has delivered us from the power of darkness. How? By exposing it for what it is. By showing us what he's really like through the person of Jesus Christ. And so... At the end of time, the people of the world, in order to make a final decision about what they're going to do with the gospel, they need to see a revelation of Christ. And how is that done? It's done through people like me and people like you who have real flesh and real blood and are filled with the Holy Spirit. A corporate body of people who demonstrate the character of God. To a fallen world. That is what makes the final evangelistic thrust successful. Paul continues in verse 28. He says, Whom we preach. Now notice how this uh, evangelism is done. How did Paul preach? He says, Warning every man. And teaching every man in all wisdom, does preaching the gospel necessitate warning? Say it again. Say amen if you agree. Okay, yeah, you, good. So, preaching the gospel involves warning. Sometimes people don't like the word warning today. We don't want to warn anybody about anything. Oh, they might be offended if we warn them. But Paul was not afraid, and actually uh, it, it, uh, neither was the Apostle John. If you read John's first epistle, First John, we studied it in my Acts and General Epistles class, uh, just finished it off uh, at the end of fall semester. One of the things we saw clearly in First John, and, and it's true, all over the New Testament, the New Testament writers, the apostles the preachers of that generation, they made it very clear what people should believe and how they should live. And they were not afraid to say, if somebody says this or acts this way, they're of the devil. And if somebody says this and acts this way, they're of God. I mean, just read. Read 1 John. I mean, it's very clear. He makes it so plain. He doesn't want people to be confused about stuff. So he says, you know, anyone who says such and such... You know, this is, this is darkness, is not light. I mean, we need a revival of that spirit. We need to be kind, of course, right? How many of you agree we need to be kind? Was John kind in his letter? Absolutely. But he was also very plain. So there's warning, there's teaching. You know, people need instruction. This is part of evangelism. That's why we don't just baptize people, you know, at the drop of a hat. There's instruction that's involved, teaching every man in all wisdom. And what's the goal ultimately? That we may do what? It's on the screen. Don't look at me or you won't get the right answer. Yeah, that we may present every man perfect in Christ Jesus. That's the ultimate goal of evangelism. Not that we may grow the church, although that is a byproduct. But that's not the primary goal. Primary goal is that we may present every man perfect in Christ Jesus. Verse 29, whereunto, Paul says, I also labor, striving according to his working which worketh in me mightily. You'll notice here that Paul speaks about labor. He says, whereunto, or for this reason, I also labor. Spreading the gospel takes effort, friends. Ministers ought to be the hardest working guys on the block. It involves labor, and that labor is to be carried out in accordance with God's purpose and providence. He says, striving according to his working, which works in me, how? Mightily. God's power does mighty things, supernatural actions that it is impossible for us to accomplish. That's what we need, because who are we dealing with in this great conflict anyway? When we put ourselves on the side of Christ, when we, take a, when we accept a call to ministry, as Paul did, and that doesn't mean, you know, you may not be the pastor of a church, but you may be a deaconess in your local church. That's ministry, too. Uh, But when you do that, when you accept that call, you've made yourself an enemy of someone. And that's the devil. Is he natural or supernatural? Supernatural. So you need what kind of power to deal with someone like that? You need supernatural power. And that's promised to us, friends. It's right here. Paul says, that his working works in me mightily. I'm so thankful for that text. So let's uh, see, what can we take away from this section? Number one, is your purpose, we've talked about that, revealing the uh, mystery of God through reflecting the character of Jesus, is that your purpose? Is your purpose aligned with God's holy purpose? If it's not, what is it that you are allowing to stand in the way of your purpose being aligned with God's purpose? If it is, are you willing to stay to that purpose, even if it means you will never be exalted in this life? You know, we read about the Apostle Paul uh, because he's in the Bible. But let me ask you this. How was he looked at in his own generation? You know, we look back on him through history because we see him in the word of God, and he's held up as a hero uh, in the Bible. But how did the people of his own time look at him? They just thought Paul was the greatest. When Paul came into town, everybody (laughs) cheered, right? Really? How did his fellow church members, many of them, how did they feel about him? How did the Jews feel about Paul? Were they all about Paul? No. They were all about getting rid of Paul. He was not actually made... He was, he was famous in one sense. Uh, he was noteworthy for his resistance to uh, the devil. But Paul himself endured much suffering and was not truly exalted except as we see God's perspective on it are you willing to be in that kind of a situation are you willing to allow your exaltation to come later rather than going for the glory now let me remind you of something Jesus said my young friends and we'll wrap up with this mark 8:36 jesus said For what shall it profit a man if he gain the whole world and lose his soul? Oh, but I don't intend to do that, you say. Of course you don't. But do you think you can prioritize worldly wealth, success, popularity, and at the same time gain the experience you will need to stand through the final crisis and reflect the character of Jesus to the world? And what about those others for whom you are best suited to reach with your particular talents and temperament. You know, each of us is unique. If you don't put forth the effort for those souls for whom you are best suited to reach for Christ, how will your garments look in the day of judgment? Will they be stained with the blood of souls? You know, there are lots of things that uh, any of us could do with our lives. I'm sure I'm looking on a very talented group. I have at least one of my students in this group. My daughter's in this room. I know she's talented. The student that I'm looking at is also very talented. There's any, you could do anything you wanted to with your life, Sarah. What will we choose to do with ourselves that will serve to best advance the purpose of God here in this world? To finish the work. And that's what we ought to be about. So it's with that thought that we'll conclude this uh, part of our series, and we'll take just a short recess, but let's stand for prayer. I would like you to just move around a bit before we go into the next hour. Father in heaven, thank you for the opportunity and privilege that you've given us of considering uh, this part of the book of Colossians. Help us to align our purposes by your grace with your great purpose for your church. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. This message was recorded at the GYC 2014 conference at the Cross in Phoenix, Arizona. GYC, a supporting ministry of the Seventh day Adventist Church, seeks to inspire young people to be Bible based, Christ centered. And soul winning Christians. To download or purchase other resources like this, visit us online at www.gycweb.org.